This morning we are concluding the teaching series that we've been in since mid-September. Can you believe how long we've been in the series? Called Radical. Radical is a word from botany that refers to the part of the plant that becomes the primary root. We've been using that metaphor to explore our primary roots as a church, pun intended, um, by studying an important book from the New Testament. We've been going through the book of Ephesians, and pretty much chapter by chapter, asking the questions related to our identity. Like, what does it mean to be a community of mystics? What does it mean to find our identity in Jesus? And uh, I really enjoyed this series. I hope that you got a lot out of it. If you missed any of the messages, you are free to uh, listen to them on the website or on iTunes. But today we are wrapping it up. We are in the final chapter, chapter 6, and we're going to read a passage about spiritual warfare. Ooh, there's no noises? I thought there was no Ooh. Um, it's one of those subjects uh, that brings up a lot of questions, a lot of feelings, and people have a wide range of perspectives. And uh, hopefully um, you understand that this is not going to be a comprehensive uh, survey of this topic. Whew. Hopefully that was a relief to you and not a letdown. If that was a letdown to you, um, then you know we can certainly talk about it sometime. I love talking about it. Come chat with me afterwards. I'd be happy to point you to some good resources where you can dig a little deeper into the subject. But this morning's message is not going to be about how to rebuke the devil. It's not going to be uh, all the rankings of angels in heaven. Uh, none of that stuff. Um, in fact, I'm going to try to stick very closely to our seed verse. To be rooted and established in love. So I'm going to primarily be talking about love this morning. But... Spiritual warfare is a subject that I've been thinking a lot about for about 20 years, actually. Thinking, writing, doing some speaking, um, and a lot of reading. Uh, and partly that's because I came to faith in the Pentecostal tradition. And the Pentecostal tradition tends to emphasize spiritual warfare. Uh, I'm very grateful that I was discipled in a Pentecostal congregation where I, I believe that I received a very balanced view of this subject. However, unfortunately, I did have some experience with some very unhealthy views. Uh, for example, when I was a youth pastor for a Pentecostal church in New Orleans, while I was in Bible college, uh, there was a pastor on staff that prided himself on having a very successful deliverance ministry, which means that he claimed to routinely cast demons on people. And uh, at a particularly boring staff meeting, I was doodling. Uh, I was doodling gang symbols from when I was a gang-involved teenager, and he happened to look over and notice them, and afterwards he came over to confront me. And he confronted me and he said, um, I saw what you were doodling, and I recognized them as occult symbols. And I said, no, no, you know, you misunderstood. Uh, those are just gang symbols from when I was a teenager. And he was not deterred at all. He had already decided that I needed an exorcism. <laughs> And so he said to me, well, I know you're from a broken home. And that's one of the ways that, that, that's one of the ways that doors are opened to demons. And I was so deeply hurt by that. Like I never had that phrase, you're from a broken home, applied to me kind of like as a weapon. And um, I, was, I was so disgusted and hurt that I not only wanted nothing to do with that pastor anymore, I kind of wanted nothing to do with the church anymore. That's how much I was hurt. So I share that story partly to illustrate that how we talk about this subject has real-world impact on 
our relationships, on, on how other people view the faith. And, um, and, and I also share it to share this pitfall. Pitfall number one, when it comes to spiritual warfare, is an unhealthy interest in the demonic that can hurt people. In fact, just this past week, The Atlantic posted an article on exorcism in the Roman Catholic tradition. And another pastor here in St. Paul shared that article, and I saw on Twitter uh, a man responded saying that he had been so deeply hurt by a so-called deliverance ministry because they mistook his social-emotional disorder for demon possession. So the first pitfall that we got to avoid is this unhealthy interest in the divine that can end up hurting people. Um, but C.S. Lewis identifies two of these most common pitfalls in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, a very famous book. You've probably heard of it. He writes, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devil. That's, you know, he's British. So one is disbelief in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Materialist and magician. So what I'm hoping to do this morning is to, you know, in the very limited times I have, is to share a few insights that I believe will help us avoid some of these potential pitfalls, these harmful pitfalls, um, and to think about what this passage might positively mean for us as a church. And also, you know, just hopefully uh, that we learn a little bit more about the subject. Those are my goals. Very modest goals. We don't have a whole lot of time. <laughs> so before we dive into the text, would you mind joining me in a word of prayer? We want to invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text. Holy Spirit of God, you are the one who opened the eyes of Elijah's servant when the soldiers had surrounded him. And you enabled him to see the hosts of heaven who far outnumbered his enemies. In the same way, I pray we open our eyes today to see that our battle, to see our battle with your eyes, to see your provision and your victory. I pray that we be energized by this message, energized by your spirit to join you in the fight as we are empowered by love. Jesus' name. All God's people said? All right. We're going to start in chapter 6, verse 10, and we're going to read from the NIV this week. Feel free to read along in your own translation of the Bible. If you have questions about translation, I'm happy to talk to you about those as well, one of my favorite subjects. Starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness and place, and with the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, 
which, with which you can distinct, extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Okay, so a lot in that passage. We're not going to get to all of it. Um, but the first thing I think we need to do is we need to recognize our distance from this world. Uh, Paul is writing this from an ancient Near Eastern culture. And he's writing it nearly 2,000 years ago. So we have to appreciate that when we come to this text, we are interpreting this as an act of cross-cultural interpretation. It's very different than our worldview today. Because in our social location as 21st century Western, Westerners, uh, we're tempted less to fall into the trap of obsessing over the demonic, but more into the trap of dismissing the unseen realm altogether. We, we tend to think of it as primitive superstition. This is where I have found the work of uh, theologians like Greg Boyd, N.T. Wright, Richard Beck, and Walter Wink very helpful. And uh, this morning I'm going to use some of their work liberally. I'm going to quote them. Uh, this might be a little heady. I hope that it won't be too heady for some of you and um, might require a little bit of focus, but hang with me. I think it'll pay off. So we in the modern West are in the minority view. We have to appreciate that. We have to appreciate that the vast majority of the world and of human history view the world differently than we do in the West here in the 21st century. And secondly, we in the modern West are actually not above using some of the same language about the unseen realm that the ancients did when we have no more explanations for things and when we don't want to be blamed personally. That's when we break out the, un, the unseen realm. So here's something that Greg Boyd wrote. He wrote that inasmuch as the assumption of naturalism, let me define naturalism for you. Naturalism is the viewpoint that everything that happens in the world comes from natural processes or causes, and that the supernatural or spiritual is excluded or discounted. Okay, that's naturalism. So inasmuch as the assumption of naturalism that lies behind the Western academic claim regarding the impossibility of believing in spirits or miracles is not rooted in any compelling argument or evidence and has not been shared by the vast majority of people throughout history, it is liable to the charge of being chronocentric. Chronocentric means it presumes the superiority of what these academics interpret to be the modern world. So we're right, everyone that came before us is wrong. And it's liable to the claim of ethnocentrism. It presumes the superiority of the cultural perspective of academics. And elitism. It presumes the masses lack the intellectual acuity to perceive the impossibility that these academics claim to see. And for these same reasons, it's vulnerable to the charge of being uncritical. And here he makes a bit of a jab. A point that is particularly ironic, given that naturalistic Western academics tend to view themselves as critical thinkers, right? So 
To dismiss the possibility of the unseen realm that influences the visible realm is fundamentally arrogant. That's what it is. It's fundamentally arrogant. Since the vast majority of people throughout history and around the world and across cultures have uniformly believed that there is more to this world than meets the eye. Their testimony and their experiences, they actually do matter. This kind of arrogance can have really grave consequences. So for example, some of you might be familiar with the book, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. Anybody ever read that book? The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down is about the clash between a small county hospital in California and a refugee family from Laos over the care of a young child named Leah Lee, who was a lung child diagnosed with severe epilepsy. And here's the chilling conclusion, or one of the chilling conclusions that the author came to. The author writes, I do not know if Leah would be able to walk and talk today had she been treated by Arthur Kleinman instead of Neil Ernst and Peggy Flip. However, I have come to believe that her life was ruined not by septic shock, nor non-compliant parents, but by cross-cultural misunderstanding. That's the kind of Western arrogance that can actually hurt people badly. Because you don't believe there's more to the world than meets the eye. And you will carry that arrogance into uh, medical work. Now, that is, that's not to just, you know, diss all medical practitioners. Not all medical practitioners are as uh, culturally competent and sensitive as those who attend roots. <laughs> Present company excluded. Um, but of course, even modern Westerners are all too eager to use the language of the unseen realm when explanations fail them or when they don't want to be blamed personally. So here's a quote that has helped me over the years to understand this better. It's from N.T. Wright in a sermon that he wrote shortly after the global economic crisis. You remember when all the banks failed in 2008? N.T. Wright preached this sermon. He said this. He said, in the ancient world of the Bible, the earthly battlefield and the heavenly battlefield were not separated by a great gulf. The heavenly battlefield was the hidden dimension of the earthly. The extra feature of ordinary reality that explained what was really going on. The principalities and powers were not far away. They're the inner dimension of exterior events. Do we smile at this stuff? If we do, we are smiling at our own faces in a mirror. Who runs the world? The politicians? Forget it. They profess themselves to be helpless. They are the victims of forces beyond their control. Of course, they try to take credit when things go well, but when things go badly, the truth comes out. It was all a matter of economic forces. Forces? I see no forces, but they must be very powerful. They've kept us in a recession in the last three or four years. They create floods of refugees, and the most powerful people in the world can't sort them out. They have thrown millions of people out of work. They have pushed thousands of businesses into bankruptcy. Walk through our big cities today, and in one door, doorway after another, you'll see young homeless people begging. Who put them there? Ask the politician. Ask an economist. It was economic forces, they'll say. It was the political climate. That's the language we ourselves use. We can't touch 
and see these forces, maybe some of them for a little while come to be quite closely identified with certain human beings, but take that person away and the force will still remain. As it was often said, it is not the managing director that runs Ford Motor Company. It's Ford Motor Company that runs the managing director. Force, power, climate, entities bigger than the sum total of the human beings involved. A set of situations that nobody but nobody can do anything about. The only significant difference between us and our ancient ancestors appears to be that they recognized the situation and gave these forces vivid names, while we hide behind the gray obscurity of vague words in order to go on flattering ourselves. As MasterCard advertising says, you've got the whole world in your hands, which is, of course, what the serpent promised Eve. You'll be like gods, knowing debit and credit. So I share that extended quote because it's helped me over the years to understand and avoid some of the pitfalls that I'm talking about this morning. One of those pitfalls is to dismiss the unseen realm altogether as, as primitive superstition. And, and yet, N.T. Wright teaches us to recognize that the demonic and evil can be systemic. It can be institutional. It can inhabit corporate entities. That's what he's showing us. Now, often people who write off the unseen realm hypocritically go on to use the same language that the ancients did because they don't personally want to be blamed. And what N.T. Wright shows is that Paul and the other apostolic authors, they have profound wisdom for us today that is not to be dismissed. So if you're keeping track, that's three pitfalls. Okay, here they are. Number one, an unhealthy interest in the demonic. An arrogant dismissal of the unseen realm and a failure to recognize the systemic nature of evil. Those are pitfalls we need to avoid. But there's one more, and this one might be my favorite. This one's called Scooby Dooification. <laughs> Richard Beck authored a book called Reviving Old Scratch. Old Scratch is an old name for the devil. And uh, he describes this pitfall very well. He says, in many ways, Scooby-Doo is a perfect metaphor or parable of what it feels like to be a person of faith in a secular age, characterized by what he calls disenchantment. 500 years ago, the world was full of supernatural forces, witchcraft, monsters, and ghosts. The world was enchanted, rife with thin places where the borders between the material and supernatural worlds touch. Things are different today. We live in a skeptical age when science and technology define what is true and real. With the advent of electric lighting, the dark forces that haunted the night have been banished. There's no more room for monsters anymore. Any single episode of Scooby-Doo traces this 500-year trajectory. The moment in our lives from enchantment to disenchantment. The first part of Scooby-Doo of a Scooby-Doo episode parallels the age of enchantment, beginning as it does with a supernatural monster, ghoul, or ghost. Anybody ever seen these? These ones? Okay, good. Um, but as the kids investigate, they grow suspicious and doubtful. As reason and evidence assert themselves, disenchantment grows, and the supernatural creature, the agent of the occult, is eventually revealed to be Mr. Jenkins, the greedy banker. A story that begins with enchantment ends with disenchantment. 
The supernatural is simply a cover for human greed, theft, and corruption. So Scooby duplication is an error of reduction. It rightly recognizes that evil can be systemic, corrupting influence over systems. So that in that way, it avoids pitfall number three. But it creates a new pitfall by reducing all evil to merely systemic reality. It reduces them. And so it's kind of a, a version of the second pitfall. With, it, it eventually dismisses the supernatural altogether. So that is why I think, for all these reasons, that is why I think that Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 6 are so important for us today. Because I think Paul carves out a middle way. He carves out a way to navigate the pitfalls that we are prone to fall into. But I also think that we need a good visual illustration to help us. A, a, good, a good movie clip would help right now, right? So I have waited for over a decade, and I'm not joking. I've wanted to show this video clip in a sermon about spiritual warfare for more than 10 years. I mean, this, is, this is my chance. I'm going to take my chance, okay? So this is it, real, real quick. Technical difficulties. Can rewind briefly? Must be the horse. Thank <laughs> you. 
a battle between an evil wizard and a good wizard. But you couldn't see that in the throne room. It was, it was a hidden battle. In the same way, the corruption of a system, an institution, a nation, is far more harmful than the corruption of one individual. Theoden represented a kingdom. Theoden was a king, and so he was a monarch. And often there is uh, an individual that serves as a figurehead for some sort of corporate entity. But they are not our true enemy. They are themselves victims of evil, captive to a shared enemy. Now stop for a second, just for a moment, and imagine how it would change our lives if we really believe, really believe that human beings are never our true enemy. Imagine if we saw them as caught up in evil, perpetuated by dark powers we would be free to look upon them with God's perspective. We would be free to look upon them with empathy, even love. Paul also writes, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So now, from now on, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly perspective. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. He also wrote this, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Listen to this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Human beings are not our true enemies. Instead, our true enemies are what Paul calls powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly world. Now, when I think about this, I think about an American follower of Jesus who understood this very, very well. I'm talking about Dr. Martin Luther King. He taught that enemy love was essential to the struggle against racism in America. He taught that human beings are never our true enemies. That even the personality of someone who hates is distorted by their own hatred. And they become victims of that hatred. Here's what Dr. King wrote once. Listen to these words. We must recognize that the evil deeds of the neighbor, the enemy neighbor, listen to that, he calls them the enemy neighbor. We must recognize that the evil deeds of the enemy neighbor, the thing that hurts, never quite expresses all that he is. An element of goodness may be found even in our worst enemies. This simply means that there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. When we look beneath the surface, beneath the impulsive evil deed, we see within our enemy neighbor a measure of goodness and know that the viciousness and evilness of his acts are not quite representative of all that he is. We see him in a new light. We recognize that his hate grows out of fear, pride, ignorance, 
prejudice and misunderstanding. But in spite of this, we know God's image is ineffably etched in his being. You hear that? Then we love our enemies by realizing that they are not totally bad and that they are not totally beyond the reach of God's redemptive love. Powerful words for a man who actually died loving his enemies. Dr. King shows us what it means that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. He struggled against racial injustice, against prejudice and racism, against hatred. He struggled against unjust laws and a demonic Jim Crow system. They didn't struggle against human beings. When our true enemies, when we see our true enemies as the systemic and spiritual powers, then we need weapons that are systemic and spiritual to fight them. This is why Paul uses the metaphor of a body equipped with armor. He's not talking about individuals praying and rebuking the devil. He's talking about the body of Christ. That's clear from the context of Ephesians. He's talking about a new way to be human community together. A new way to be human. This way of viewing spiritual warfare is critical for us as we are on this journey together, figuring out what it means to be a community of misfits. Our love for one another and our love for our enemy neighbors is our strongest weapon. It's what Greg Boyd calls revolting beauty. Revolting beauty. When we understand Jesus' life in its first century context, it becomes clear that every aspect of his countercultural lifestyle manifested the beauty of God's reign. While revolting against the powers that fuel and sustain everything ungodly within society and creation. To imitate Jesus, therefore, necessarily involves joining his lifestyle revolt against the powers. And this, I submit, is the primary way that Jesus' followers are called to participate in God's ongoing battle against the forces of evil. To live like Jesus lived is to revolt against the powers the way Jesus revolted. Here in the United States, we have the luxury to participate in our own government. We can vote to elect representative leaders who are supposed to legislate on our behalf. And we have the right to free speech and the right to criticize our government when they make decisions that we disagree with. We have the right to free assembly. But I think it's good and necessary that that is not all that we do to advocate for justice in our society. We have to vote with every day of our lives. We have to vote with our community, as a community. Yes, we are called to seek the shalom of the city, and part of doing that is participating in the democratic process. But that's not where it ends. We must be a community that demonstrates in microcosm, here in our fellowship, the society of shalom that God is creating at large, and that will one day characterize all of creation in the new creation. We are putting on display the beauty of the gospel even now, anticipating Christ's return to make all things. And only then, when we are united in love 
for one another and for our kingdom neighbors. Only then are we joined in God's battle against the principality and powers. Pray with me. Father, we are, we do stand in awe of you. You are the creator of the universe. You are the one who hung the stars. You are the one that knows them by name. But you also know us intimately. And you know uh, our failures and our frailties. Lord, I pray that as we press into this Advent season coming up next week, as we press into the tension between hope and lament, and we look around at our world and we see the brokenness, we also see your kingdom breaking in. That peace and justice, your shalom, is coming in anticipation of the renewal of all things. And I pray that we would see that happening here in the midst of our fellowship as Roots Covenant Church, that we would be a microcosm of your beautiful shalom society. Help us to love one another in practical ways. Help us to advocate for one another. Help us to vote for one another every day of our lives. Help us to, to see your kingdom come in St. Paul, in our neighborhood, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.